Certainly a common fixture of modern life that we have days, moments, even periods of our life where it feels like everybody wants a piece of us and a piece of our schedule, right? From family and friends and employers or employees or exercise or school or church or youth sports. And I think when we feel that, our instinct is there's something wrong with the volume of activity in our life, right? Does that just seem intuitive? We just all think, oh, there's, there's too much here. And that might be the case. But I want to ask you to sit with a, a little different thought this morning. What if the chief challenge is really having a set of values and priorities that could make a life coherent? I just don't think we're mostly going to start being monks. I mean, as much as I have moments where I'd like to. Um, I have a couple of mentors who are sort of monkish, and I have to admit I have green envy occasionally. But it doesn't appear like my very rich and full life is going to change drastically anytime soon. I mean, it feels like there's always going to be too many things competing for my current levels of emotional, spiritual, intellectual energy. And so what if another way of getting at this isn't simply just angsting over the volume, but trying to gain a set of values and priorities that could help make managing such a thing coherent, whatever you might add or subtract. And this is the voice of God through Haggai. Give careful thought to your ways, our text says. And I want to say to you as we go on this little 20-minute journey here together this morning, that you engage in this without judging yourself, without guilt, without shame, but just to give careful thought to your ways. Um, John Goldengay, the noted Old Testament professor at Fuller, I believe, says, the reason Israel needs prophets is that there's always something that needs to be said that goes against the people's gut-level instincts. Right? This is where prophets come in. You know, we're just living our life, doing the best we can, but prophets come in with this different angle, this Godward angle. And in this case, the Godward angle is that God issues an invitation to think about our lives, to just begin to notice our patterns of living in order to pay attention to what's actually happening in our lives, but not just that, but the outcomes. Who's the, 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 the TV doctor, Dr. Phil? What's his favorite saying? How's that working for you? Or something like that? What's his, uh, is that it? How's that working for you? This is the invitation of Haggai. Look at your life. And you know, Dr. Phil thought he, he invented something. But, but this is what God is saying through Haggai. Just look at your life, and especially, we'll get here in a minute, notice the outcomes. So the question comes really provocatively when God says to Haggai, how is it that it's the right time for you to live in your fine new homes while God's temple is in ruins? Now, you know the history here. Israel's been in exile. They were told that you'd go into exile and the temple would be destroyed. It, of course, was. The people are now back in the land. And back into the land, you've got to picture these are peasants. These are very poor people trying to scrap together a living. And in so doing, they're thinking very normal thoughts. Well, let's get ourselves a place to land here. 
you know, let's, let's get ourselves a house, right? Doesn't that seem very normal? And then, and then we can begin to work on the temple, which lies in ruins. So their rationale seems to me very human, goes something like this, the economy's bad, so we can't really give to God's work, at least not yet. And what Haggai is saying, or God is saying through Haggai is something like this, yeah, okay, but you're managing to get your own desires to be fulfilled. But again, the people are thinking, I think they, I think they think they're thinking really benign thoughts. Like, well, we just got to get our lives together first, you know, get our finances in order. And maybe they're thinking about their life stage. You know, we've got three or four little kids or we're very elderly. Maybe they're thinking about their health and thinking if we can just get our life together, well, then we can sort of give the remainder to God. And of course, you know, this, that kind of thinking as um, empathetic as one might want to be with it, I'm certainly empathetic towards it. We just have to say it kind of flies right in the face of Jesus saying, seek ye first God and the expression of his reign on earth and everything else will be added to you. And so this just sort of prefigures, uh, you know, Jesus saying what the relationship with God and his people is meant to be like. So God says, give careful thought to your ways. Take a good, hard look at your life. Just think it over. And the reason I commend this to you this morning, like I said, is this is a no guilt, no shame, no judgment zone. The reason I'm placing it before you like this is that I just know in our over-busy, over-calendared, over-indebted life that conscious deliberation is actually rare. But really important because as we begin to think about our lives consciously, we begin to connect to our subconscious reality, that place from which we actually act habitually. I've told you before that I think a scholar from the Midwest, James K. Smith, is making a wonderful contribution to Christian thinking. And Smith, in his book, um, Imagining the Kingdom, writes this. We tend to think that life works like this. I see a situation. I consider my options. I think through my obligations and the range of possible consequences. And then I make a conscious choice to act based on the outcome of that mental deliberation. But we all know we say and do dumb stuff before we stop to think about it, right? Most of us do this all day, every day. Say and do dumb stuff before our mind can stop us. Well, why is this? And it's because most of us don't live that way. We live out of a kind of misinformed or malaligned sense of imagination or story. Because as Jesus taught all throughout the Synoptic Gospels, what we do is rooted in who we are. And who we are is what we love and desire. This is what predisposes us to certain choices and actions. So think of our gospel reading. And that little sort of tit for tat between the Syrophoenician woman and Jesus. And when she finally says, but Lord, even the dogs under the table get the scraps. I mean, paraphrasing here, Jesus is impressed. And he says, you're right. And he commends her. Why? Because she's living out of an imagination in which she knows whatever the circumstances might look like, my God is going to provide for me. 
And it's that imagination, it's that, it's that intuitive sense, it's that subconscious or pre-conscious thing in her about what's really real that Jesus commends. Because it's out of that heart. Come on, you know you're Jesus. It's out of a heart of fundamental trusting that she's able to say that. But yes, Lord, even the dogs. Yeah, I know I'm a Syrophoenician woman, and I know what all that means. But Lord, even the dogs. You can hear the faith in that, and this is what Jesus is commending. But the people, back to the people that Haggai's talking to, they're, you know, as, you know, sort of vagabonds, peasants, they're seeking security, they're seeking some comfort, comfort during this very difficult economic times, and as we've said, who could blame them? But as we begin to read the text, if you can find the portion in your text where, uh, in chapter one, where, you know, you've planted, ate, drank, What's happening here is that, in a sense, <clears throat> the people are medicating their fear and insecurity and uncertainty. And again, it's, it's, it's easy to be empathetic with. They've been overrun by the Assyrians. They've been overrun by the Babylonians. The Samaritans are hassling, hassling them and making the temple, temple difficult to build. The temple's in shambles. And all of this, their sort of social political history, just feel that. You know, maybe think of one of the little Balkan states or something that's been overrun over and over and over again in the 20th century and fought over over and over again for 100 years or more. So they've, they've got that social political history that makes them feel like losers. The Samaritans are a present pain in the rear. And every day, I mean, just picture across that grass there, literally a ruins, just sort of stones that were supposed to be on top of each other that aren't grass and weeds are growing over it. Every day they have this mental reminder of sin and defeat. And they're trying to medicate it through a kind of an ancient form of consumerism, you might say. But they're also feeling what we feel as modern consumers, the deep felt emptiness that comes with trying to consume our ways out of pain or confusion or whatever. So the Lord says through Haggai, you've planted or invested much, but harvested or profited little. You eat, but never satisfies you. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it, meaning, again, it just never satisfies. So God says, give careful thought to your ways. And the main message, I mean, this is a very simple message. I mean, some, I mean, a lot of scholars in the thousands of year history since this was written have wondered, why do we have this little book of Haggai? I mean, it really essentially has one message in it, build the temple. And why is the temple so important, et cetera, et cetera. But this is what God's saying, rebuild the temple. Again, paraphrasing something like this, just do it for me. Just honor me. You, you know, look, you've had these great ambitions for yourself, but nothing's coming of it. So just do this for me. And, and what God is prodding them about, about is that though they're back in the land, life's not so good. Well, again, it raises the question, why? And the answer is because my house remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. And then God says, now this is typical of Old Testament, you might say most benignly training, uh, maybe more strongly chiding, this, but this is, um, very common of the interaction between God and his people. Therefore, sort of to get your attention, 
I've called for a drought on the fields, on people, on livestock, on all your labor. Fourteen times in this little book that is only, I think it's like less than 50 verses. Fourteen times in this little book, Haggai calls the Lord, the Lord God Almighty. Over and over and over again, insisting on this sovereign power that's at loose on the earth and contrasting that with the little dopey things that we do to avoid that or to not really pay attention to it, but 14 times. Uh, Israel is encouraged to fear the Lord, which is to say to have a deep sense of reverence and holy awe for Him. Why? Maybe God's a little insecure. Maybe God's like an actress who gets off the stage and goes, I'm not sure if the people loved me. Or maybe it's something like this, that having a deep sense of reverence and holy awe for God creates an inner nature and a character that's different than those who don't have such a devotion. Maybe that's what's going on. Maybe God knows exactly what he's doing in training a people in this way. So the word of the Lord comes then, seeking to pull the people forward, saying to them, be strong and work. And then if you look at your text, there's this very important little three-letter word. Be strong and work for. That's a very important logical connective. Be strong and work for I am with you. My spirit remains with you. The Hebrew here is, is very warm and wonderful and profound and, 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 and is meant to convey both a personal and active, powerful presence. That, as Cindy just helped us sing, changes everything. This is the notion. You can be strong and work because I am personally and actively among you. That means there's this powerful presence that changes everything. It breaks the power of the numbing, paralyzing fear that the people were living in. What if the Samaritans are just the next in a long line? Wouldn't we be idiots not to protect ourselves, ground ourselves, make sure we have like a launching pad, like, okay, we'll get around to doing God's work, but doesn't it just make sense to first make sure that you know, we, we've got a stable base from which to do that. I mean, that, I have great empathy with what they're thinking. But what God's trying to show them is that that's actually becoming a dehumanizing, numbing, paralyzing fear. And God's call to them, by the way, to create the temple or recreate or rebuild the temple, restore the temple, is so that after the exile as the people came back, there would be amongst them in their community a symbol of reverence to God's presence. And for whatever reason, in God's economy, and I don't know that I have an adequate explanation for this, because look at how many of us don't think buildings are very important. I mean, I come from the era, the you know Calvary Chapel Jesus movement, who we intentionally stripped buildings of anything religious. So did most of the seeker movement. And we didn't want anything that even remotely looked religious. Now look at me now. 
I don't know why I said that. It wasn't in my notes. <laughs> sort of an existential cathartic moment. Right? We just stripped it away, but what God's thinking is, no, this people, and, and I, I, again, I don't, I don't know that I quite understand the divine wisdom in this, but in his wisdom, it was important for this people to have a symbol of his presence, that that would be the rock, that not what, are, are you feeling me here? Not what they could build in their own foundations, as empathetic as we might be with that, but that that was never going to cut it. It wasn't strong enough against the powers. It wasn't strong enough against genuine forces of evil or even just, I mean, spiritual forces of evil or human evil that they were going to need among them. It was okay for them to have houses that were finished. It's just that the temple, which, was gonna, which signified God's presence, which was the differentiating presence, was laying in ruin. That's the deal here. And that nothing they could build for themselves could in any way um, replace that. That this temple was going to be core to the revival and renewal of God's relationship with his people in return from exile. And then there's this wonderful promise at the end of the passage. And in this place where you create a place for me, I will grant what you're looking for. Shalom. You're trying to eat it. You're trying to drink it. You're trying to buy it. You're trying everything you know in your human capacity to find shalom, and you're not finding it. But when you cooperate with what I'm doing, God says, then well-being and harmony and rich blessing will come to you rather automatically, or it's just the natural outflow of hearing and obeying me. So in conclusion, I want to say a couple things briefly. One is, it's fascinating to me that human beings need space dedicated to God and to worship of Him. It's interesting, right? All of us could name two or three Bible texts that seem to say the opposite. You know, God doesn't live in houses made by human hands. The Lord's worshiping, looking for those who worship Him in spirit and truth. Right? We go on and on naming passages that seem to say this isn't important, yet I think what's happening here is something like this, that the building materials, you know, lath and plaster, or drywall, or whatever this is, you know, and whatever the framing is, that those kind of materials, it's okay for them to create a space in which it conveys to us symbolically the presence of God, but not just nails and wood and drywall, but what about a place in our soul? What if this was meant to be a symbol of what was to be created in our soul. How might you create a temple in your checkbook? How might you create a temple in your calendar? How might you create a temple in your clicks? You see where this is going. That this was always only to be symbolic. Like in the same way that the ruins was a daily reminder of our sin and being losers. The rebuilt temple was meant to be a daily reminder of God flowing into, beyond our building materials, into our souls, into our calendars, into our checkbooks, into the way we click around on our devices. And I think there's a beautiful little word here for the vast majority of you, and I know everybody who feels this way wouldn't be here on any given Sunday morning, but um, I just know that a 
more than half of the people who come to Holy Trinity on some sort of regular basis come out of disillusioned experience with religion. And I think this is a beautiful little word to you if, if it's like time and right for you to hear it. And this is it. This arises out of our text. That it's possible for religious work and peace to go together in harmony. It's possible. But only when facilitated by an obedience that comes from the Spirit. Because the imagination that God's trying to give the people of Israel here is something like this, that a hammer or a drywall knife can be every bit as spiritual as the prayers prayed in the building they construct. Now, I know most of us come from backgrounds that just go, I've sat through enough fundraising schemes, right? What do we call those things? Uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> campaigns, thank you. I've sat through enough campaigns, like, no thanks. But nothing's done without the cooperation between the animating person and presence of God, his activity in our lives, and our human cooperation with it. It's a joy to work. Like, when was the last time you thought this thought? I'm sure you've thought it before, but when was the last time you reminded yourself that working with God came before the fall? Work is not a, a derivative of the fall. Work is the derivative of a rich, interactive relationship with God in new creation. And it's when we can restore that that it makes our strokes with a drywall knife redemptive. That we're, we're working with God. We're creating that temple in our soul, our calendar, our checkbook, our clicks. So God says, think carefully about your life. Just sit with it. Contemplate it. And especially contemplate the effects of your current system of decisions. And again, not in judgment, not in guilt, not in shame. But remembering this morning, if you can, that repentance, though it is firstly and preeminently Godward, of course, repentance is also a gift to us on the other side of the coin. It's for our own good and our own blessing because it reorients us to what's good and right and true and of God. So as we have a moment of quiet here, I want to suggest a couple ways that you might work with the Spirit this morning. The first is, has God asked you to do something? And are there things that you need to put aside in order to obey Him, in order to start or finish this calling? So maybe some of you this morning, as you hear the word of the Lord, you become aware that God's asked you to do something. And maybe there's things that are in the way and that they need to be put aside in order for you to either start or finish this calling. But I think for others of us, maybe the Spirit would work with you this way. Are you working and striving harder and getting less and less out of it? Are you working and striving harder and harder and getting less and less out of it? And if that's your reality as you experience it now, then maybe you can just sit in a quiet moment and ask God just what's going on, what he might want to show you or teach you in this moment.